Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the big interview, live. Yes, we recorded our first ever live big interview just before Christmas with Neil Lennon at Greenwich Town Hall. The occasion was a fundraising event organised by friend of the podcast, La La Land Liver, Martin Compton, who kindly invited us along. As well as being a terrific actor, former footballer, ex-dandy no less, and all-round top fella, Martin was raising funds for Ardgowan, a terrific hospice based in Greenock. You're listening to this podcast for free, but if you do feel like supporting Ardgowan, please visit www.ardgowanhospice.org.uk, then hit the donate button. It's a brilliant cause. Now, Neil Lennon. Oh, man. This was fun. As you're about to discover, Neil tells a story just as well as he used to retain possession. You're going to hear Neil talking about Martin O'Neill dragging his Leicester City players to Yorkshire Ripper murder scenes. Neil Lennon getting told off by his hero, Noel Gallagher, for misbehaving before an Oasis gig. Man bites dog? Twice? Yes, you heard that right. Noel telling off Neil... Mr. Lennon also speaks passionately about youth development and the overcoaching, which he believes is preventing the emergence of more free-thinking, creative young footballers. Our guest also goes into huge detail about his encounters with Barcelona as a player and a coach. This is Neil Lennon Live, and love is in the air. Do enjoy. We're going to talk tonight to a man who took particular pleasure in tormenting my club throughout his reign as a Celtic manager. Neil Lennon is bright, funny, interesting, multi-talented, and obviously hugely successful as a footballer and a manager. So, to do the big interview live in order to support Art Gowan, which obviously by being here you're doing, but throughout the night we'll ask you to do more of, is a privilege. 
especially seeing as I can now click my fingers and make a fantastic footballer walk through that door, I hope. Everybody, Neil Lennon. That's the way to welcome a top, top, top man. Lovely. Evening. So, when we, uh, I don't know how many of you listen to the big interview regularly, but when we plan it, and most of it is planned, although it might not seem that way, we always think, Neil, about how do we begin? So I thought the most appropriate way to do it would be to phone up the guy who I thought was most like you. So I phoned Carlo Ancelotti. Hmm. And Carlo said, yes, Neil Lennon reminds me of me. You knew that, didn't you? Yeah. Tell me why. Because not everybody will remember the, the current Bayern Munich manager, Carlo Ancelotti, perhaps as anything other than a fantastic football manager. But he was a central cog in several teams, particularly Roma and AC Milan, as they either dominated Serie A or the European Cup. What do you recognise in Carlo's description of your playing style being like his? Well, first of all, it's a massive compliment. It's not the worst, is it? Um, he was part of one of the, the great club sides in European football. He did pay me a compliment. We played AC Milan, I think, in 2005. And uh, he singled me out as being a player that he admired. So as far as that's concerned, you know, it's, it's very flattering. Um, and maybe the, we are similar types, you know, that sort of... I mean, he was quite barrel-chested, but he was a great technician as well. Um, probably a little bit quicker than me as well. He read the game very well, and, you know, his range of passing was, was excellent, probably a lot better than mine, but for him to even say that I reminded him of himself, like, you know, was, was a great fill-up before the game. Here's what I read into it, is that Carlo Ancelotti was a midfielder who not only did his own work really well, but ensured that with his positioning, his reading of the yeah. game, as you mentioned, he made other people's jobs a little simpler around him. And that doesn't just come from ability or intelligence. You need to be a generous footballer. Is that what you felt? Did you try to do that? Yeah, I mean, it's a role that uh, you grow into as you evolve as a player. Um, and Martin, um, particularly when I went to Celtic, you know, sort of told me that's the position he wanted me to play. You just sort of patrol the pitch and see the danger, break up the play, you know, and keep, you know, the attacks going. Um, he had that as a player at Nottingham Forest with John McGovern, you know, who Cluffy had. You know, John McGovern was that type of player, not fussy, didn't steal the limelight or anything like that, but he was Brian Clough's captain, so he played such a huge role. And I had 10 years under Martin, whether it be at Leicester or Celtic, and, um, you know, I didn't know I was doing well. He, he picked me every week, so I must have been doing something right. Um, and yeah, you had your glamour players, you had your Moravchiks, your Larsons, your Suttons, but you need a player like, you know, the modern day, you know, there's a Makaleli, there's a Gattuso, that type of player. I think every team needs one of those as well, just to, you know, mind the ship, really. It's handy that you mentioned Martin O'Neill because he was gonna come up anyway. I'd like to say I phoned Leo Messi to ask him about you. If I had phoned him, he'd have been a bit miffed because it's world famous that Messi signed for Barcelona at a time when the club wasn't very clever. They weren't backing him. He was a young kid, tiny, 
and he was forced to sign his first contract on the back of a paper napkin yeah. in the Vesuvius Tennis Club. Um, <laughs> how did you first get your terms of contract from, from Martin O'Neill when he came to visit you? Mine was a bit more glamorous. It was on the back of a pizza box. <laughs> I, um, at the time, I was living with a friend, just renting a, a, a terrace, and Martin O'Neill described it as a hovel which was quite flattering, actually. Um, so it was like, just men behaving badly, really, you know. There was, we didn't cook, you know, certainly didn't clean. And I had um, spoken to Coventry. Ron Atkinson was the manager. I was playing for Crew at the time. Uh, they bid 750,000 for me. Uh, went to meet Ron Atkinson. Thought, yeah, I mean, it's Premier League. It's a great opportunity for me. Um, he got me tickets for a game that night. It wasn't far from where I was living. They were playing Man City at Main Road in the Cup. So I went along to the game and then went home and had a couple of beers with my mate to celebrate going to Coventry the next day for a medical. And then I got a phone call from Jim Melrose, who I don't know if many people know Jim, played for Partick Thistle, Celtic, Man City, Leicester, Charlton, among other clubs. Good striker. Yeah, Jim was looking after a little bit of my affairs at the time. And he rang me and he said... Um, what are you doing? I said, I'm sitting in the house. He said, um, right, don't move. I said, why? I said, I've got Martin O'Neill in the car. And John Robertson. And I went, right, they want to come and speak to you. I said, right. I said, what about? He says, what do you think, you idiot? You know, we want, them, we want you to go to Leicester. I said, right, okay, bring them up. So we're busy trying to... <laughs> was there much tidying up to do? <laughs> yeah, there was a lot, yeah. The rats had left in disgust. <laughs> So we're there, like, right. you know, just, you know, you, at least you can see your feet on the floor, you know what I mean? Vaguely. So when he came, this whirlwind of a man, you know, and Lenny, nice to meet you, nice to meet you, nice to meet you. Martin always repeated himself three times when he was excited. <laughs> how are you, how are you, how are you, pal, how are you? <laughs> and then John Robertson came in after with a long coat on and the fag. Did he sell you a dummy at the time? Because, oh, uh, yeah. He didn't, yeah. Whoa. With an ebrius on. Oh. And for the next 20 minutes, he basically sold Leicester City to me, who were in the championship. He said, we think you've got great potential. We think we can get promoted this year. We think you could be an integral part of it. Um, and that night changed my life. You know, just one of those moments in your life that you look back on and say, bang. That was the moment that changed your life completely. And Jim had said to me, before Martin had come in, he says, right, what a Coventry offer you? I said, a thousand pound a week and a hundred grand signing on fee. He says, you tell him it's 1,500 quid a week and 150 grand signing on fee. So when Martin actually asked me, I went bright red. <laughs> I didn't want to lie to him, like, you know, but I was, I must have the offer you son, um, 1,500 quid a week. Oh. <laughs> Pardon? Uh, £1,500 a week. Oh, was that right? So he's looking for paper and pen, and he can't find any. And there's this Domino's pizza box, and he just ripped off the back of it. And he wrote down what he was going to offer me on a three-year contract, £1,800 a week, £200,000 over the three years. And I looked at it and went, wow. Because it was life-changing, you know? I was on buttons of crew. I was living in a rented accommodation with my pal. Um, and this was life-changing for me. So we took a walk around the block with Jim. He says, what do you think? I says, well, it's fantastic. And his enthusiasm's overwhelming. 
but you know, still got the problem with Coventry. He says, well, just ring them and tell them you're not coming. Tell them you changed your mind. So I agreed that night with Martin. Went back to the crew the next day, told them I wasn't taking the deal. Dario wasn't very happy at the time. Mm. And then two weeks later, um, the Leicester deal come through. And that was in February. In the, in the May, after a horrendous start, and I have to tell you, Graham, there was pitch demonstrations against Martin wanting him out. Um, after about nine or 10 games I'd been there. But he, he stayed really strong. He said, look, we've got 10 games to go. We'll win nine, get into the playoffs. We'll get promoted. You can take the glory now, but when we get promoted, I'm taking all the glory because mm. you lot are giving me all the flack at the minute. And he, to be fair, we did. We went nine games unbeaten. Made the playoff and beat Crystal Palace in the final. We've got a big privilege. I was praising you before you came on stage because you're a very, very good footballer, very successful football manager. But the part of the privilege that people like you share with all of us and everybody listening, is that you've experienced this man. So we know Martin O'Neill is tremendously able, successful, but you, th you said things like whirlwind or I was overwhelmed. Just try and put into context what it felt like that night. You've said what happened. When you're first exposed to this force of nature, because he is, yeah. and it touches on what great managers do in any sport, because it isn't simply figuring out the opposition, or telling you who plays where or picking the 11. It's, it's inspiring men and women. That man management, that ability to reach in and touch your soul, reach your brain. That first experience of Martin, what, what was it like, the impact of it? It was exhilarating, you know, and I didn't sleep much that night. Um, just that persona he had, you know, and even when he managed, you know, when he walked into the dressing room, that was it, you knew he was in the room. Everyone switched off. He would speak to you for a couple of minutes and then he would go again. And it, it, his style was very much man management, but he was brilliant at it. And there was the days you'd be walking into the club and he'd make you feel that big. And then other days he'd make you feel that big. So you never knew where you were with him. You know, he never socialized in the 10 years, you never socialized with him. But there was a, a method to, you know, there's a method, he, he was a deep thinker about the game. I mean, I'll give you an example. The year we got promoted with Leicester, um, the following pre-season, we into the Premier League for the first time, myself, Muzzy Izzet, you know, the likes of, uh, later on, Steve Guppy and Matt Elliott, and we'd all played in the lower leagues. Emil Heskey was breaking through at 17, 18. Um, so all pre-season, we played four at the back. And then Thursday, before the season started, we were going to Roka Park to play Sunderland. And on the Thursday, he signed Spencer Pryor, centre-half from Norwich, and Casey Keller, an American goalkeeper. So we go up to Roker Park, reads the team out, 3-5-2. <laughs> never worked on it, never practiced it, but his psychology was, you're good players, trust the system, we trust you to do it. We got a draw, and then our next game was a home win against Southampton, and then we never looked back after that. And I think for about, for all this time at Leicester, he played three at the back, and certainly for a concerted period of time at Celtic, it was three at the back as well. But, you know, everyone talks about, you know, you've got to put this into practice and practice and practice. And there is obviously room for that, Graham, but that wasn't Martin's way. He put the responsibility, he picked good players, then he put the responsibility on you. Yes. Let's think about picking good players but, then. But because in, just, sorry for interrupting. He obviously had thought about it, and he obviously had looked at the squad, and he had thought, we may struggle with the back four. 
And uh, you, you're looking at your midfield of myself, is it Gary Parker? You know, maybe Guppy would be better as a wingback going forward. He had three centre-halves, he could head the ball. His, his template was to have centre-halves, you know, big and strong. You know, a dog in midfield and always a big striker. Just define that. I mean, like, over and over again, we hear football terminology. Now, you said a dog in midfield. Uh -huh. Just break down what you mean by well, that. Basically, someone who, like, you know, will do the, the dirty work. You know, break up the play, read the game. You know, that sort of role that I had, uh, whether it be at Leicester or Celtic. Um, just scurrying around the pitch, you know, plugging in gaps when people went forward, or if there's a, there's a counter attack on, being the first line of defence to protect the centre halves. And very rarely did I go ahead of the ball. My, my role sort of, at Leicester, was a little bit more forward thinking, but certainly at Celtic, with the players that he had in an attacking sense, it was more to just sit in front of the, the back three or the back four, whoever it was, and just patrol in there. So when he asks these things of players like you, or it doesn't matter if it's Guppy or Claridge or Didier Gatt, whoever it is, the central issue is that he has to have picked well enough to find somebody who's got the right character but the right ability so he can pass the responsibility to them. I want to try and draw a line between the guy that taught him and then he's taught you and then you, I think, have replicated some of the... I think there's a line from Clough Obviously, Martin played under Clough, mm -hmm. but I'm not just saying that. I would say that two things link Clough and Martin, and then Martin and you. Certainly, I think that Brian and Martin have what I like in what I think is not exclusive to British people, but eccentricity. There is, or idiosyncrasy. Yes. And, an, and a happiness to exude that idiosyncrasy. Maybe I would include myself as, a, as an eccentric in this as well. But also picking horse flesh. You named John McGovern. Not everybody will remember John McGovern, but John had been at Derby when Clough won the title yeah. there. John's a bankery boy, an unobtrusive footballer, but very bright, and lifted the European Cup as captain twice. And what Brian Clough at Nottingham Forest, you know very well, did was he picked people like Kenny Burns or Larry Lloyd, who many clubs would say, well, that, that guy's maybe finished or not good enough or hasn't got the pace, and he made one of the most extraordinary teams in British history. Mm. And then Martin has patently got that same ability to touch people that Clough did. You've got that. It's a central part of your repertoire as a footballer and as a manager. But also all three of you, I think, pick players really shrewdly. Um, first of all, do you accept that genealogy from Clough to Neil to you? And secondly, will you help us a little bit by talking through maybe what Clough or Martin or you did in that horse flesh, that selecting a footballer and saying, that's the right one, whether it's Muzzy Izzy, whether it's Chris Sutton, whether it's how you picked up Van Dijk or Wanyama or Fraser Foster, whatever. Did you see the point I'm making? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to know in the modern day the personality of the player sometimes. I think back in Mr. Clough's day, I think the personalities, certainly Peter Taylor would have done a little bit of groundwork on that. I think with recruitment now, you can, a lot of people delve into the background of players and, and stuff like that. In terms of uh, what Martin did, I think he came to watch me about five or six times before he decided to Personally. push the button. Yeah, um, And the same with Muzzy, and obviously he was getting reports in. But what he did, he nurtured it as well when we got there, Graham. He nurtured us, and or we might have had the character, but we grew with him, if you know what I mean. We grew in the, his style of thinking and his style of play. 
and I think that's what Martin does brilliantly, is um, he gets players on side very quickly. I mean, at the minute, the Republic of Ireland is sitting more or less top of the group with, well, you wouldn't say a team full of superstars, but somehow he's able to tap into that group and, and get the best out of them. I think Brian Clough is a genius. And I think you'd be stupid not to take things from Brian Clough, and I would be very, very remiss if I didn't take things from Martin O'Neill and his, whether it be his style, his psychology, the way he thought about the game, the way he looked at the game. Um, now, he wasn't on the tuning ground every day. You know, he would leave that to the likes of Steve Wolford and John Robertson. But certainly he knew everything that was going on. And come match day, that's when he really came alive. Why, why would that be not on the... That seems odd at face value. You're a manager, you want to see your players every day. Does it create um, a gap so that he can assess and stand back? Does it stop familiarity breeding contempt? What's the reason, do you think? I think, the, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think familiarity breeds contempt. I think if you hear the same voice every day, you know, again and again and again, it, it does lose the impact. Um, whereas he always had impact whenever he spoke or whenever he gave you a bollocking. You know, you, you had to listen and take it on board. Um, but a very, very astute guy. I had 10 wonderful years with him and they were very, very successful. And certainly, the majority of the stuff that I do as a manager, you know, stem from Martin. I'd mentioned it idiosyncrasy and you agreed with it. Martin had a bit of a fascination, what, with true crime? Or yeah. Had, did he sort of share some of that with you Yeah, guys? we were playing Bradford City um, in the Premier League and there was one Friday night he took us out on the coach and he took us, <laughs> took us to all these uh, places where the Yorkshire Ripper had killed people. <laughs> that's straight out of the coaching manual. That, that's... That's, I mean, everybody does that. We were like, Fair Capello, that was Capello's idea first. We were like, what the, what, you know, what the fuck's going on here? Like, you know, <laughs> he would stand up and he goes, oh, this is where Peter Sutcliffe took her. Drag her down the alley, then stabbed her 14 times. And he, every, he went to every day of the trial, every day. Well, he, he did study law um, at Queen's University, I think. And um, he was fascinated, and I think he, he still is. And I think, you know, you have to be pretty sharp to get one over on Martin, as a few journalists have found out over the years, or even chairman. He uses language well, which um, you were born with too. You're smart and articulate. Is that something that's, I don't think that happens all the time in football. A lot of people express themselves in football terminology all the time. You use language well. That's a key thing about getting through to a footballer, rather than the days where you could bully footballers or lose your temper and give them a bollocking all the time, given that the majority of them are multi-millionaires now, you can't do that. Yeah, I think you're, you're spot on with that. And I've learned that as I've gone along in management, that they're a different generation from us now. You know, the modern day footballer from like 15 years ago, and I'm sure guys 15 years before I played were saying the th same thing about us. And you do have to um, handle with care sometimes. You know, there still is room for the bit of the hairdryer treatment. And when I was certainly at Celtic, I was, very much young and wanting to make an impression and a bit of a firebrand. But I think as you grow older, you know, when I came into Hibs, I was very much using the same sort of philosophy, but it wasn't working. And I said to my assistant one day, I said, look, I'm gonna to have to take the foot off the pedal a little bit because I'm not getting through to these guys with the, you know, if I'm scaring them. I feel like I'm scaring them. You know, whereas 15 years ago, you'd have took it on board and gone, right, I'll show you. They're a different generation now. When we were playing and, uh, you know, we're talking about modern day football, we're talking about Scottish football. And everyone says it, Graham, we played football morning, noon and night. On the streets, on the gravel, on the shale, 
on the, on the greens and estates. It's impossible to do that now. And there are all, all these facilities for kids now, but they're getting coached to death. And um, I, I worry that their natural instincts is being coached out of them at an early age. And then they become sanitized. The academies are full. I think they're over saturated with ordinary players. You know, we've tried different blueprints. We've looked at the Spanish model. We've looked at this model. And really, we should go back to basics. And I came in one day to Celtic on a day off. And uh, I said, uh, I wanted to watch the under-21s training. Just, and they were off. So I said to myself, you know, where's the under-21s? And Jim McGuinness was, you know, working with the younger players. And he, he came to me and he said, look, my, my concern is, having viewed it for a while, we're creating mini-me's. Mm. You know, they're creating, the copying what the first team are doing. Now, that's all well and good, but the first team itself like, would play 50, 60 games a season. These kids would play half of that. So they should be working twice as hard. No question. They should be working twice as hard. And they're not. And I think that was a big wake-up call for, for a lot of people, um, certainly with the under-21s anyway. Um, and I... I you would have a kid, say, at Celtic, or a kid at Partick Thistle, or a kid at Ross County, in the academy system, and they train maybe two, three times a week. They don't play for the boys' club, don't play for the school, so they're training with a professional club. And they're doing maybe two sessions a week, Graham. And how much of the ball they get in the sessions, I don't know. Because some days I used to see pitches like Presswick Runway, with cones everywhere, and everything sort of done to the specifics of the coach. And then, say Celtic were playing Ross County, they'd travel up to Ross County, and the kid would be in the squad, and he would get maybe 15 minutes. Now, I'm not just talking about Celtic, I'm talking about the game in general. So that kid, in that week, has had 15 minutes of football and two training sessions. Whereas we, when we were growing up, we were playing school football, boys club football, Gaelic football. And what's more, whenever I, when I took Tommy Burns over to Juventus, they were doing double sessions three times a week and I'll speak to leading professionals around Europe who sometimes do treble sessions. Mm -hmm. Now obviously each of them is calibrated differently, they're not all physical work, sometimes it's tactics but it's also creating, like I remember the, the this isn't my podcast and I don't mean to, to no, go ahead. talk across an expert but I remember going to Euro 2008 as the Spain correspondent and um, they train twice a day every day in a tournament at the end of a long season. What we are taught by particularly the England managers when they, they assess their players' physical state at the end of a season, and they say they're in bits because the premiership is blah, 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 blah. So I said to the Spanish technicians who were under Luis Aragonés at the time, what, what, won't they be tired? Why are they training twice a day? He said, one, you can't keep these players away from the ball. They're never happier than when they're chatting or playing or training, and therefore we do it to keep them happy. Secondly, it creates a spirit it's fantastic for them to be constantly working, not stuck in a room or in little factions. It's a tournament which is slightly different from youth players. But also he said um, it fights boredom. Everything is positive about this. So for, to listen to young players who are missing the chance to bond, to learn, not just to get fitter, but to teach themselves or be taught their trade better than they are already. What do we do? Because you, you talked first of all about playing on rubbish pitches or everybody here must have played on blaze where you, you know you kill yourself if you slide in so you learn not to be knocked over to get away or how to jockey not to slide in streets you the cobbles the cars whatever certainly we're more socially affluent now as a society 
you know, than obviously than we were 15, 20 years ago. Softer. Yeah, no question, Graham. I, no question. You know, I see it in the modern day player. I see it in the in the younger players as well. That they're sort of sanitised. We've sanitised the game. Um, and what we've done at the Hibs is we've got a little barn and it's a little indoor arena and it's sort of like the length of this room and we get the boys in there and we don't coach them we just go where you go play play and play and play and play and they get stuck into each other bash each other off the walls and all of a sudden you're starting to see their mm. natural juices their instincts kicking in and I think that's right for young players. They have to learn problem solving. They have to learn their technique. You know, I remember speaking to Gordon Strachan about it, and he, he said he had one of his, his grandkids at a, might have been his grand, yeah, or one of his younger boys at a, an academy session. And I, he said, I think he touched the ball maybe 30 times. Whereas he took him into a gym and made him kick the ball against the wall for half an hour and he touched the ball maybe five, six hundred, seven hundred times. Gordon's an extreme, extreme case that I love because I, I, in this series he told us how he made his wife, Leslie I'm sure, lock him in the garage, take the car out, we'll take the car out first, lock him in his own garage with a ball to see how many touches off the wall he could get in half an yeah. hour. She would knock at the door and say, that's your half hour, come in and watch Gordon, it's just a thousand touches, he said. Yeah. Just the Scotland manager up against him and the wall and the ball. I know it sounds really antiquated and as if we're going back the way but we're not producing the players that we were producing it's evident and we're not, physically we're not producing them either and certainly tactically or game intelligence ways we're not producing them either now why is that are they overcoached that that's my own opinion is that they're over overcoached i even took him some to a boys club and he said dad i don't want you to watch because you'll embarrass me in front of all the all these kids who are celtic fans i said right okay so i went away behind the trees just to watch and he didn't see a ball for 20 minutes 20 minutes he was nine years of age for 20 minutes he didn't see a ball he was doing a warm-up for 20 minutes and that is what's wrong so in that hour 20 minutes is wiped off straight away because he's stretching or he's warming up these people are your coaches are volunteers and the mean well you know the mean, the mean well. But for me, from a professional point of view, that's not the way I was taught the game. I, I obviously was self-taught. And then I got coached when I was maybe 14, 15. And then when you're in the professional game, you get coached even more. But you're already at the club when you're 14, 15 because you're good. And what's made me good is I've had practice and practice and practice. And I've learned how to master a ball or control a ball or pass a ball or run with a ball myself now that's my own opinion people shoot me down in flames for saying that but I, I just think we sanitize the game now for kids it's just too too much like the modern day footballer what they don't see is the end what they see is the end product what they don't see is the sacrifices the Ronaldo makes the Messi's make totally right. the Beckham's make they see the end product in all the glory at Old Trafford, you know, Sky Sports Sunday, and they go, I want that. Well, if you want it, you gotta work really, really hard, son, and you gotta make some real sacrifices. And then when they realize how difficult it is, you know, most of them fall away. You mentioned three, two people there, Messi and Ronaldo. Beckham didn't have any 
physical impairments. But I was writing this week about Ronaldo winning the Ballon d'Or. The only Scottish Ballon d'Or winner comes from my city, Dennis Law, Aberdeen. Born with a squint, a terrible squint, such that when Huddersfield signed him, I think it was Bill Shankly, like, they thought they got the wrong fella, literally. He was that scrawny, and he couldn't see properly out of one eye. Leo Messi, everybody knows he was so small, he had a growth, uh, slowness in growth, so he had to take growth hormones. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been a professional footballer. It was painful, he had to self-inject. People forget Ronaldo had open-heart surgery at 15. Now, you, you went through, because of exactly what you're talking about, as a kid, you overplayed mm. to the extent that it damaged your spine. So you had to go through that process of spinal surgery. Yeah. Which, one, tests your fortitude as a man, or as a young man then, but presumably having been through that, you can relate to whatever happened to Dennis Law, to Messi, to Ronaldo, going, right, if this is fixed, here's what I'm going to do with my life and with my ability. Do you recognize that? Yeah, basically I was at the bottom of the food chain. Um, by the time I had the surgery, I was at crew. We got relegated to Division Two. And I got player of the year that season, but I was told halfway through the season that I was going to need spinal surgery, um, where they take a, a sliver of bone off your hip and fuse it into your back. And um, I thought, well, that's okay. It's, it's a back operation, it'll not take long. I asked the specialist long over the for, and he said, you know, you'd be out for 18 months. And at 19, that is, you know, devastating. You know, I'd already had a disappointment of being released by Man City. You know, I thought I'd found a good home with crew and then to be told that I was going to be out for 18 months, it was a lifetime. And it, it was, it put me in some really uncompromising positions. I had to wear a corset for six months, ladies. Um, I had a big plaster cast around me for, for three months where I, I convalesced at home, really. I was in the hospital for two weeks in a ward with some 60 and 70 year olds. I think a couple of them died actually in the two weeks I was there. Thankfully, one of them did. He never fucking shut up for it. <laughs> and I, I, had my 20, I had my 20th birthday in a hospital ward lying on my side eating a, eating a Chinese. So, the way back was a long, long way. The way back, just the plane was a long way. The way back to where I wanted to get to was, you know, a lifetime away. But, you know, I had to do the work. Crew looked after me really well. I, I did a lot of work in a, in a pool on my own where you were just running with an aqua jogger on length after length after length. Um, gym work. I ended up getting quite stocky around the upper body and because I was doing a lot of gym work. And all that time I'm watching the games and it was really frustrating um, and then my first couple of games back after a long long time out uh, obviously you're very rusty we were playing Rochdale on a typical Friday night like this at Scotland where they didn't have changing rooms they just poured the cabins it's pissing down my rain and it's soaking and we are a crew who like to play good football and Rochdale are you know up and at him sleeves rolled up and then a player called Sean Reed, who's Peter Reed's brother, and he had legs like tree trunks, just like his brother. And 15 minutes into the game, he just went through me like a hot knife through butter. And up I went, and I went bang on my back. And you're lying there going, well, this'll test it. So I got up, nothing wrong with me, felt fine. And that was it, I was away again. And that was basically getting over the rehab, getting over the mental 
sort of worry about how the back was going to fare up in that. So that tackle more or less gave me a lot of confidence after that. Adversity, I think, makes the man, and, and that's just about as tough as it gets when you, you fear for your mobility yeah. as well as your profession. I'm going to take the chance now. I asked all of you um, earlier on to, to get questions. This, after the break, there's a Q&A for Neil, um, which will be enjoyable, and anything that we don't raise in this interview, you can raise then. But I, I asked for, I've got a Kay Bridges from Clyde Bank. Uh, a fellow guest on this big interview series, and his writing's not great, but he says, do you credit Kevin Bridges for rejuvenating your managerial skills via football manager? And could you ask him about the Hansel and Gretel trail of crisps across the West End? Does that mean anything to you, Neil? Uh, yes. Mr. Bridges used to frequent the West End every now and again, and um, I think it was actually we were, it was the end of season, and, and I'm about to go on holiday the next day. But I bumped into Kevin in the West End, and we had a few beers. We ended up going back to his house at one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. And Kevin is football mad. He loves the Spanish football, as does, you know. Does. Loves Celtic. You know, he's quite a obviously a very intelligent guy because of what he does as well. You have to be the be that talented. But he's sitting up playing football manager on the computer. And I've never played football manager. And he's got Lenny, come here, help me out here. I'm struggling. <laughs> I've just signed Stephen Naismith for Celtic. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no wonder you're fucking struggling. <laughs> I said, right, leave him out, put him in. Change the formation, and all of a sudden, he started going up the table, you know, so. And then, I got the munchies. <laughs> and Kevin lived on his own, so you can imagine what the house was like. A bit like my place back in Manchester <laughs> in the day, you know, dead bodies lying everywhere, and cans of beer, and I found this big six-pack of quavers. And I'm like, oh, well, that'll do nicely. I said, Kev, I'm away. It's four o'clock in the morning, man. Mrs. is going absolutely tonto. It was about 37 missed calls. So, off a go, staggering along the West End, Chris Packett down, another Chris Packett down. And Kevin followed me. And he, knew, he, he knew it was home because there was a fucking Craver Packet every 50 yards up to the door. So, needless to say, the wife wasn't impressed, like, you know. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'd say we've got a link, you and I, that involves, in my part at least, alcohol. Um, I having lunch with George Graham in London and I got a phone from... Stuart Baxter. If I could say that with an asterisk in the name, then I would. But and he says, "You've got it. Like, what, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I've been offered maybe to help, maybe mentor, be with Neil at Celtic. But Manchester United have also said that Kirosh reckons that he's going to get the job from Fergie when he leaves. And I'm going to. What should I do? And why he was phoning me, I've got no idea whatsoever. Particularly when I was pissed out of my head, having been drinking all day. And I was at the Albert Hall." a long chat with Stuart about what I thought he might do and might not do at which point I celebrated the end of that conversation with another couple of pints of white wine and um, enjoyed the gig which was a Noel Gallagher Teenage Cancer Trust so much with my pal um, Ian McGarry that we reckoned a good thing to do would be to be in Noel's dressing room to greet him when he came off stage now nobody else agreed particularly the bouncers and uh, we were thrown out of the Albert Hall much to my chagrin Something that both Liam and Noel now know about. But you've possibly got an even better Noel Gallagher story. Would, would that be fair to say? Yes, I think there's a connection <laughs> here between me and Graham. I got chucked out of a Oasis gig in 1996 when... They were my, I love my music. It's you know, extraordinary. And I just loved Oasis. Yeah. So I went as much as I could to see them. Seen them in Edinburgh, Sheffield, London, Manchester. But it was the coming home, the main road. It was very very special so the build up to the the gig was amazing as all Oasis gigs were in them days Happy Mondays were on before then so you can imagine the carnage you know in the stadium like so I'd gone with Steve Lomas who was the captain of Man City at the time and a couple of other uh, Leicester players and a couple of Irish players so we had a great great day went to the gig we were up in the Steve had got us nice tickets up in the main stand but we decided to go down onto the pitch and get involved and proper rock and roll. Join in. So afterwards, he said, look, I can get us backstage. And I'm like, oh, oh brilliant. My heroes, like, you know, and I've named my son Gallagher after them, although I haven't told my missus that. <laughs> <laughs> she, she just, she liked the name, you know. Um, so we get in backstage and, and straight away, we're walking down this narrow corridor. It was called the old Kipex stand. There's all these executive boxes. So I'm walking down the corridor and Patsy Kensett comes out, he was dating Liam at the time. I'm like, oh, wow. Then Stan Collymore came out of another one. Fuck knows what he was doing. <laughs> um, well said. Then Liam Gallagher, like, <laughs> and I, I was like awestruck, you know what I mean? He just, he was a legend. He was quite obliging, like, you know? So in the end, we ended up going all the way down to the corridor and there was a few cans of Guinness there. And, we're rightly on, you know, and no one was talking to Steve Loomis, and, and Steve gets a bit itchy when he has too much to drink. He starts fucking looking at me in a funny way. <laughs> so I'm talking to Bonehead, who was the bass guitarist, his grandfather, and he's, he was Irish, we're talking about Gaelic football and blah, 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 and see the corner of my eye, Loomis is still looking at me. So the guy walks off, and I said, what's wrong with you? He went, you're out of order. I said, what are you talking about? He said, that was terrible what you said to him. I said, you won't even listen to the conversation. Next thing you went, bang. Stop, oh. stop ahead on me. <laughs> and I'm like, oh. <laughs> right. 
So the two of us are rolling on the floor, fighting at the end of this corridor, right? Two mates as well. And the next thing, these three big security guards came down, storming down, and I'm being dragged out all the way back up the corridor, past Noel Gallagher, past the shame. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Lomas got kept in. I said, why is he being kept in? He started, he goes, he's the captain of Man City. He, he's allowed to stay. You're fucking out. And I had to walk home from the stadium that night. Couldn't get a taxi anywhere. So it took me a long time to get over. And actually went to the Barlands to see them. And again, Martin was there, Alan Thompson, Sutty, a few others, Henrik, moving in afterwards. And the first thing Noel Gallagher said to me was, hey, don't you be fighting the night. And he remembered it like, you know. You know you've been told off when the Gallaghers are worried oh, about, oh, yeah, exactly, about your behaviour. Yeah. You're really in trouble then, aren't oh, you? It's another great gig, the Barlands. You know, you can imagine. It's, what a venue, eh? Oh, it's fantastic. What a venue. fantastic. So what does music do for you, Neil? I mean, listen, right across this series of big interviews, I've always chuntered on about how much I love to sing. You, you, you'll sing if, do, you, I, if you're pushed. A, a bit of karaoke. Yeah. Yeah. Chrissy Waddle told us that he's a dab hand at Rebel Yell, bit of jam. Um, Harry Redknapp was telling us about uh, Ryderson and his, when they had a bonding thing for the Portsmouth Cup final, he turned up at the karaoke session in a full Elvis outfit. Right. And they were, everybody goes, him and his wife, to end up singing. So firstly, if you had to pick three karaoke songs, you're three. And secondly, tell us a little bit more about Beyond Oasis, the bands that do it for you, that get you, you know, out of your daily lifestyle? I like Forever and Blue Jeans. Bit of Neil Diamond. Bit of Neil Diamond, you can't beat it. Uh, Love is in the air. Jeez. Believe it or not. Proper voice. John Paul Young. Yeah. Should we do a little couple of Love is in the air? That's it. Everywhere I look around. That's it. One. Love, Love is, is in, in the, the air. air. Every sight and every sound. And, and I, don't I don't know if I'm, I'm being foolish. Don't know if I'm being wise, but it's something that I must believe in. And it's there when we look in your eyes. Hey! Boy, oh boy, I tell you what. There I hope are... this isn't on social media or anything like that. Don't you be tweeting any of this? Are you mad? I'll be getting slaughtered tomorrow. There's actually representatives from the music industry in here tonight. And there are, and uh, you're going to be linked up afterwards. I like the, um, I like the big groups, Graham. You know, um, Simple Minds used to like them. I don't really, I'm not really a follower of modern music as such. There's nothing that really floats my boat. You know. Um, Would you be a Sinatra man? Could you do? I like a, a bit of Sinatra, yeah. Naturally, yeah. Elvis, I like. You know, all the old. I like a bit of country and western as well. What does music do for you? Um, inspires you sometimes you know that's what i was fishing for that's what it does for me it does inspires you you know i mean back in the day when you were playing you had the headphones on or you know you'd put a cd on in the front of the bus and that would you know get you going before the game and obviously nowadays they have the big stereos in the dressing room and the shape that they put on thank god you and i are very very alike you need to worry about that but we are and i'll wait for them to go out and then i'll put my music on so hold on the lads will remind me because we did we not just Carlo Ancelotti contributed to this but his assistant Paul Clement and he, he was talking about um, where were they going they were going to the, the Lisbon Cup final where's Neil and Martin and Carlo kept putting on lovey dovey Barbara Streisand songs on the team bus and he was bummed right out by that oh, he's, 
Real Madrid boys, they're like the reggaeton, which is utter awful, shite. Awful, awful. It's just, I just don't get it. It puts me they off. Are. They are. It's just noise. And every now and again, it's motherfucker or something like that. <laughs> That's, I just don't get it at all. <laughs> Listen, I think we've nailed that one dead forever. Um, you used a phrase, and we were chatting backstage about it, that I adore. And I've gone to Spain, um, not for the lifestyle of sunshine, but because I wanted to learn more about football. And I've got very lucky in that it's been the golden age of Spanish football, both club and international. And as much as you listen, you learn. And it seems to me that they have a different respect for the football, what the football's for, what you should do with it than broadly we do in our country anymore. And I thought back to, and I chatted to some of my friends about your playing style. And I think that often we in the media um, described you poorly because you were competitive for sure and because you would give no quarter for sure. But that obscured the fact that you were a very intelligent footballer, you knew what the ball was for, you did other people's jobs. If you're covering somebody else in midfield, you said a dog, I, d I don't like the phrase, I know it gets mm. used. You have to think for two or three people, not just for yourself, whereas most footballers can't think individually all that well with their own tasks. But you, you, didn't, you hated giving the ball away. Yeah. Mar Martin Compson was commenting that he was at a game where you were getting grief from your own fans because, because you were retaining possession of yeah. the ball. Just talk about things like your pre-match warm-up with Steve Wolf, where the ball would be pinged at you as hard as anything, and the boxes that you were taught at City way, way, way back about keeping possession. You used to have a gym at City uh, underneath the, the stand, the main road, and we had an old coach, very famous man, City. He was player, captain, manager, Tony Book. Legend. He, he, he was Legend. my youth team coach. Title winner. And uh, he would take me into the gym in the afternoon for hours on end and just kick the ball to me and kick it off the wall and had to, you know, master the first touch. Everything was two-touch. Um, adjusting to the spin of the ball, you know, right foot, left foot, predominantly right, obviously. But just making sure my first touch was uh, clean. Um, and that stayed with me throughout my career. You know, it took great pride in that. Because it was obviously yeah, a pivotal part of the game. You can't play without the ball, and it's something that you know it has evolved. You know the Guardiola Barcelona team. For me, in 2011 at Wembley, the best club set I've ever seen. Just they made Manchester United. They were a great team, look practically ordinary. Now it would be great to bring that to your your own club, but. It takes a certain kind of player. It takes a climate, I think, Graham, as well at times. Big deal, of course. I think it, it takes um, yeah. years and years of understanding and, and practice. Creating a culture. Creating a culture, yeah. It takes a long, long time. I mean, I think, you know, Celtic went to the academy and it said it took them 30 years to get it right, you know, so. But, you know, Tony Book, Glenn Pardo were my coaches and everything was based on possession football um, and, and keeping the ball on the grass. Um, and that stayed with me then, I went to the crew with Dario, and again, he was uh, way ahead of his time. I know he's got his troubles at the minute, but we'll, we'll touch on that later if you want. But again, he was a really forward-thinking manager. He would go and watch Ajax back in the, in the 90s, study them, bring over their template. Um, and he was more, he was in a position where he could say the performance mattered more than the result. 
because he had earned it at Crewe and their philosophy was to find young players, develop them, move them on and he did that very successfully for a long time. So for those five or six years, I had a very, very good education in terms of looking after the ball. You mentioned Barcelona and, and how good they've been. Your record with Barcelona is, is quite extraordinary as a player and a manager. Let's keep it to the four games where I've just moved there and they're rebuilding the club and they've built it via Rijkaard, Cruyff's appointment. Begiristein is there choosing the players. They've chosen well in, in Deco. They've, they've bought Ronaldinho. Those two games, to me, were like everything that I like about football because Parkhead, as good as you were, it was, it was quite rough and ready, particularly in the tunnel at halftime. And it was like, story, yeah? tell me. The bad boys, those Barcelona boys, yeah? Honestly, you know, the killers, they are. And I, you know, I, I said to my players when I was managing, I said, don't you guys think for one minute that they will not cut your throat? Yep. Your Xavi's, your Iniesta's, Messi, they will cut your throat. And I, I've seen that from first-hand experience because it was half-time, it was 2004, half-time, Bobo had, had a, a bit of a, he had a bit of a jostle with Mata, who is now, at, I think he's a PSG guy, he's is a he? Person, yeah. Is he Argentine? No, he's Italian, isn't he? He's big, got an Italian passport and he's Brazilian by birth, but he's an Italian. Big, big guy. He's a monster, Six eh? foot one, you know, I, well built, elegant player, left footed, real good technician. Um, and they had words on the pitch. Now, as we're coming off, the halfway line's there and then you're walking down the tunnel. And Matt has stood on the halfway line. And I've walked past him thinking, well, he must be getting on one of his players or something like that. So I'm walking up the tunnel and I just get to the apex where you turn right to get into the, the dressing room area. And I turn around and hear this shouting and slapping. And there's three of them on Bobo. Three of them. <laughs> Mind you, would take three for Bobo. <laughs> Oligar, Mata, and I think it was one of the staff. So I just turned around and I jumped on Oligar um, and got him in a headlock. <laughs> and there's carnage going on in the, in the, in the tunnel. And Big Rob got involved because you could just see a white glove coming from somewhere <laughs> in, the, in the dark. So it, it gets broken up and you might know more about it than me, but it gets broken up and we're all ushered away to our dressing rooms and the two captains are called in. And um, Martin's going ballistic, like, you know, what's going on? What's going on? <laughs> Jackie, Jackie, Jackie was the captain. He comes back in and he goes, uh, Jackie, Jackie, what is it? He goes, Rob, you're off. <laughs> Big Rob's sitting like that. And I, I don't know if Mata, I think Mata got sent off and then second half, we had to bring David Marshall on. And um, what, a, what a story that was. Marshy came on. Um, Saviola got sent off second half, so in the end it ended up 10 v 9, and we won the game 1-0 to Alan Thompson. And then we went to the new camp and we got absolutely battered. And we ended up coming away with a 0-0 draw. David Marshall had made about four or five unbelievable John seasons. Kennedy at centre half. John Kennedy at centre half. Right well yeah, that night. he was absolutely flying. Luis Enrique playing, Xavi, What'd you Ronaldinho. Xavi Garcia. Yeah, played in that team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gerard. There was a right good. Yeah, Gerard, who's now the Barca B team coach. Oh, right he? good midfield. Yeah, going well too. I, I want to again. This is a privilege for us to somebody who can take us there. 
It was a combination, it looked to me, of a right good game plan, which was get through it. Some luck too, there was a lot of oh, yeah. woodwork, and that's when we were knocking at the door. How do you organise yourselves mentally and physically on a night like that? And what did it feel like? Was there a point at which it felt like the Alamo, this might go away from us? Or were you already that good, that tight-knit, that you knew that this... And sometimes do you already know that the luck's going to go your way? In football, in general? Not against Barcelona. You can never, never switch off against a team like that. You know, that Ronaldinho, who's the best player in the world at the time, who could switch the game in a blink of an eye. I, I enjoyed playing against him because he smelt gorgeous. <laughs> he smelt. He used to put. I don't know what her lacquer he put on Graham, but. Uh, well, hold on. You I, could, you could I, smell I, him before you got I don't need him. <laughs> Not be um, fair, eh? But what a player he was. Um, Can I ask you because we we played fives with a Barca B captain. He came and played in our five side, and he said that the worst thing about Ronaldinho was that in those days, at least. He was, like you said about Mota, he was just a fucking beast. And in training, if you try to get near him, you just, you bounced off him. Again, he was like, massive thighs, you know, and then really strong upper body. And he was brilliant that, you know, a lot of coaches would always tell your fullback, never give it to the winger when the fullback's tight on a a straight ball. So the left back has it here, and I'm I'm Ronaldinho, and I'm in lane. You don't want the ball, you want to miss him out, maybe and go to the centre foot. Not him. Boom. Give him his feet. And he'd hold it. He'd you couldn't get around him, could you? He'd just hold you off and yeah. then he'd roll you. Yeah. Or he'd play it somewhere else and go again. Don't you think that when we write as the, about the game as journalists or when some fans look at it, little things like that, we, we don't, you know, we look at it and you, you're like, well, you can't feel the physical power or the savvy. You know, people use their arse, big arses. It, these are things that you, when you analyse a performance, I think mostly we miss that. That yeah. physical part of football. Yeah. And at times it takes a breath, your breath away, literally. You know, if you, you don't, I, mean, I remember Rooney hitting me in a tackle at Celtic Park one night. Now, you don't want to show your hurt, but Jesus, it knocked the wind right out of me, like, you know what I mean? And you don't want to hobble away or anything. I'm like, oh, I'm all right, I'm all right. But I, couldn't, I couldn't catch a <laughs> yeah, breath. Yeah. You know, I couldn't literally catch a breath because, I mean, he was only maybe 22, 23 at the time, but again, just a, a unit of a man. And like, I could handle myself on the pitch, you know, it wasn't averse to going physical with anyone. But every now and again, you come up against somebody and you go, Vieira. Monster. Jesus, my first game against them was the night Dennis Bergkamp scored a, a hat-trick, which was just the best thing I'd ever seen on a football pitch. And this 23-year-old gangly Senegalese kid I'd never heard of from AC Milan gets the ball and he's running with the ball. And now, when you're running with the ball, it's supposed to slow you down. So I thought, I'll run on a diagonal and cut him off, and he just fucking ran right round me. <laughs> and I ended up fouling him and getting a yellow card, and I'm thinking, you know straight away you're in trouble, Graham. You know this, 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 kid's, this kid's got it, this kid's a bit special. How the hell did he do that? Because normally I would, would have cut him off. So not only did he have you know, great pace, and great athleticism, but great close control as well, and he was a big, strong boy. Telescopic legs, you think you're away. Yeah, oh, yeah, it was most frustrating to play against because you thought you were there, and the next yeah. thing, eek, yeah. a foot would come out from nowhere and he'd be away from you. Um, really gifted footballer. We got to talking about these types of footballers because you know we were at that second game where you eliminate Barcelona, they're out of the UEFA Cup. It's a really bad start for them given that halfway through that season, uh, Sandro Rosé wants Rijkaard sacked. Um, it's a point at which... Alec McLeish is, is asking them if he can take 
Iniesta on loan. There's, there's huge arguments in the club. Fact, fact. Also nearly happened. But by the time you're, you're managing against them, you know, that it's the Tata Martino season, and they're maybe not as good as in 2011. There's, no, it was, Vill it was Villanova. Was it Tito Villanova? Yeah. Tito Villanova. So Tito's taken over from Pep. Yeah. The side, the first half of that season, I want to put in context what you faced. The first half of Tito Villanova's league season was just, they set all kinds of records, goals, points, undefeated till January. They were very, 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 very good. And the two games that you, you managed Celtic against them, the two one at the camp now I want to talk about, not just the famous make Rod cry, um, Tony Watt goal, because I spoke to Victor Wanyama recently, he talked about your game plan, talked about how efficient you were on the night and in the camp now. You had them on the racks. It was a very late goal that turns the tie for them. Mm. How did you plan it? What was your strategy? What were your feelings coming away from the match, irrespective of having not got the, the point? Well, we played in Paisley on the, on the Saturday lunchtime, and then myself and you on the Albi, we got a flight out to Deportivo. So we're playing Deportivo La Coruña away, and we get to the stadium, and it's amazing, like, going to a Barcelona game. Just, you're literally, you're watching the great entertainers in, in, your, in your sport, and there's thousands outside, there's throngs of people outside just waiting on the bus turning up. So we get into the stadium, and after 10 minutes, it's 3-0. Messi scored two, and uh, I think David Villa scored. So I turned around to Johan and went, shall we go now? Because we are in trouble here. <laughs> the game ended up 5-4, Graham. Yeah. I don't know if you remember it. Yeah. And the four goals Deportivo scored, one was an own goal, one was from a corner, one was a penalty, and one was a free kick. So straight away, you're thinking, set plays. And you're also thinking, there's no way you can play against this team. If you want to try and play football against this team, you're going to commit suicide. And the prefer Sir Alex Ferguson rang me and he said, look, if you want to have a look at how to play against them, watch Mourinho's Inter Milan team mm. in 2010. They were 3-1 up from the first leg, and he had world-class players like Matarazzi, Snyder, Etu, Diego Melito. Mota gets sent off after five, six minutes. Mota again for Inter. So they're playing with 10 that day. Unbelievable. Yep. Well, basically, he camped in the first third of the pitch and made Barcelona play wide and forced him into crosses. Um, and just made sure that the central area was really compact and try and force him in, you know, wide, the fullback, make sure that the guy coming in was picked up and the fullbacks weren't getting beyond. And if they were, get in the right position to defend crosses. Now, they hung on and hung on, they lost 1-0. But the first 20 minutes, and I'm talking about world-class players in Inter Milan, the possession stats were 82% the Barcelona and 18% the Inter Milan. So I'm thinking, well, if it's good enough for these guys, it's good enough for us. And now, we went in with the Samaras. Now I needed an out, you need an out ball. And Samaras was perfect. You know, at times he played left wing for Celtic, but in the World Cups and in Euro Championships, when he was really in the mood, he could be a real handful. And when you're under pressure, and eventually your brain starts to get scrambled and frazzled, you kick the ball down the channels. And Samaras was great at 
taking us up the pitch. So you're not simply giving it away. He's got to get in there, try and win it, hold it, make it difficult for Barcelona, come back the other and way. They had, they had Mascherano. And they, you know, we told him to play as much as he could on Mascherano because mm. he was quicker than him. And obviously he's a lot taller. Mm. And you could hit his chest. You know, you could back into Mascherano. Try and stay away from PK as often as possible. Now, it's all good in theory. Practice is a different thing. However, we could have been a goal down after two or three minutes. So actually Sanchez broke in between Ambrose and Kelvin Wilson and Foster made a brilliant save. But after that, we settled. And then we get a free kick. And we're looking at them. We studied them zonally. You know, they had Mascherano. They didn't have a big team. Xavi, Iniesta, Jordi Alba. Take PK out of the equation. We got a chance. After 20-odd minutes, we go a goal up. Free kick comes in. Samar asks... Set play like at Deportivo. Set yeah. play. And it's so important to score first because it gives you something to hold on to. It gives you belief. Um, and to be fair, I had gone with two centre-forwards, Graham. I went with Gary Hooper as well. And I played Hooper almost as a, a third midfield player because I needed someone eventually to get up and join in because the rest of them would have been... Dead it's, a, it's, it's a long way back when you're chasing the ball as much as you do against those guys. And we, we, were, we were okay, as, as comfortable as you could be. And then in the blink of an eye, just around the 18-yard box, it was like machine gun. Xavi, Iniesta, Messi, back to Xavi, goal. Right on half-time. And I've come in at half-time and said to Johan, could we have done anything about that? He said, everyone was in the right position. Mm. It's just brilliant play Genius. from them. Yeah. It's just brilliant. It's only them could score that goal. So we had to pick them up again. And of course, the next 10, 15 minutes are vital. Stay in the game. We did that. You always have to rely on your goalkeeper to play well. And Foster was magnificent. And you're thinking, you're looking at the clock every couple of minutes, 90 minutes, you're thinking, are we going to do this? And then 93rd minute, last chance, we've switched off. Alba gets in around the back of James Forrest and, and sticks it in. So, you're absolutely distraught. You know, you're devastated. Not for yourself, for the players, because they'd given everything. So we got them in the dressing room afterwards and said, look, you've been brilliant. You got them again in two weeks. Just hold on to this feeling of how close you've been to getting some, a really, really special point against the greatest team in the world. Hold on to that feeling of how you're feeling now and use it as your motivation in a fortnight. Um, because you've, you've had a good look at them now. You know, it's going to be, again, monumental effort to take something off this team, but you've shown tonight you're capable of doing that. And, and we did. That was the platform for the night that Victor scores, Tony Watts scores, Rod Stewart cries. It, as, a, as a manager, as somebody, because you're managing the club you love and you support. Yes. Does... Do football nights come more satisfying or emotional than that? Are there things you would change about that victory um, when you beat a team that, that, that can't get past you? It seemed like there was 11 against 14. So was on top of the tactics, on top of the goals, the work ethic was extraordinary. Something about, that I touched on earlier about what Brian Clough had, what Martin O'Neill had. That platform you gave your players was saying, this was about the performance, not the 2-1 defeat. We can take that and you can do it again, but better. Does it come much more satisfying as a... No, I don't think so. Not, not for the relativity of the job in terms of um, 
where we were and where we had come from in the previous two years. Um, so that was, you know, a defining moment. But at the end of the game, it was like just unbelievable euphoria. And I'm walking up the tunnel thinking, right, and this is the way managers think, there's no point in beating Barcelona if you're not going to qualify for the last 16. So I really didn't take in the magnitude of the, the night until maybe a day or two later, you know, and the phone's ringing and everyone's your best friend and everyone, Elton John fucking rang me, you know. <laughs> oh, I got home and Mrs. says, Elton John's been on the phone. He said, yeah, right, okay. <laughs> Swear to God, I. He was on his way to Australia to do a tour. He said, I just wanted to ring you and congratulate you. I followed your career. I think it's a brilliant night and it's nice to see that old tart Rod Stewart still crying. <laughs> so, and then we did qualify for the last 16, which was the icing on the cake, really. It justified beating Barcelona then. You know, we got 10 points out of the group and no one gave us a prayer, really. And um, it's, it's all about the players, though. You know, any manager will tell you that. You can have your game plan, you can have your, your training, you can have your tactics. But it's, it's getting into the players' minds that they're capable of doing it. And, um, you know, we built a really good team. You know, your Wanyamas, your Fosters, Joe Ledleys. Um, you know, Van Dijk, he came later. He was a real friend as well, obviously. Victor can play. Victor's been very, very special. He's very good, isn't he? A very special player. He, he, there's things so he does that you did. Yeah, but he does it better. You know, he's a better athlete. Technically, for a big guy, he's got real soft feet. And, you know, he, people just bounce off him. And that night, you know, he, he was sensational. And he's a, he, he's a kid, really, you know, in a man's body, you know. But on the pitch, he was an absolute assassin. Look, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you all know when you, you bought into supporting Martin and Art Gowan that there's a question and answer coming. After a break, when you can have a drink, there's an auction, but clearly, if you listen to this man, his ability to inspire, his ability to teach, what he achieved as a footballer, sorry to do this in front of you, we've been listening to the best, somebody who could do it, teach it, and articulate it here for you tonight. So, on behalf of old tarts everywhere, <laughs> Neil Lennon, thank you very much. Thank you. The Big Interview is produced by Backpage and me, Graham Hunter. The music you always hear, the music that you love, is Beer Jacket, who's always been there for us. You can keep up with everything that we do by getting on the mailing list at grahamhunter.tv. How many times do I have to tell you? Yes, several thousand of you have done it, but come on, slackers at the back, sign up. That grahamhunter.tv site is also where you can buy the new updated version of my book, Barca, The Making of the Greatest Team in the World. It's my account of the Guardiola era at the Camp Nou from 2008 until 2012, plus Tito, Tata and Adios Johan Cruyff. It is in all good bookshops now, but it does also make a big difference to all of us who've worked on the project. If you choose to buy direct, particularly for Christmas at grahamhunter.tv forward slash books. You'll be sure to get the new edition and you will be helping us to continue producing 
independent content. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being there. Without you, this would be fun, but a lot less fun. See you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.